Let's go ahead and open to Colossians. As Dustin mentioned, we're starting a new series today. The book of Colossians. We'll spend approximately the next nine weeks in it. Today's going to be primarily an introduction, which I understand can be a little bit um, weighty sometimes, but I think it's important for us because when we typically teach, as you know, we like to go through a book at a time. And in order to properly interpret and understand a book, we have to understand why it's written, when it was written, who it's written to, who the audience was, and all those things. And so that's why we usually take time at the very beginning of a book study to kind of get into some of that you know, those pedantic details and stuff. So I hope this morning is a bit eye-opening as we go through that and prepares us then, sets the theme, if you will, for us to get into the book. But I want to start with something. How many of you know who Hank Hanegraaff is? Does that name ring a bell? You know, I used to listen to Hank Hanegraaff back in the day, and um, I was in sales for a while, and so I'd spend a lot of time in the car driving around, and I would always sort of pick the the, um, times that I would go out and see my customers kind of around when he would be on the air. And I just, I loved his program because, as you may know, those of you that know who he is, he referred to himself as the Bible Answer Man. And people would call into the show and ask him Bible questions, and he would answer those questions. Sometimes it was about a particular passage, sometimes it might be about a theological issue, or even sometimes a theological practice. And I always found his answers to be highly biblical and um, somewhat entertaining. He was very slow and methodical about the way he would do things. But back in 2017, he announced a fairly radical departure and change from where he had been theologically prior to that. And essentially what he had done was he had converted to Eastern Orthodoxy. Now that may or may not be something you're familiar with, so we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about that here because I'm going to try to drive home a point because I think it sets the stage for what we're going to do. And the reason I bring this up is Eastern Orthodoxy was a radical departure from where he had been previous to that. He was considered to be a a premier or prominent evangelical scholar. Um, He would align with most of the theologies that we hold dear. And Eastern Orthodoxy is a fairly radical departure from that. And when I first, and I had noticed maybe for a few months prior to that, some of the answers he was giving had taken on a different flavor, different perspective. He was starting to say some things that I thought. I don't know that I believe that. And I began to wonder, what's going on with Hank? And then when he made the announcement and kind of little lights went on, I went, ah, now I kind of get it. And I had always really wondered, what was it that drove him to abandon um, his former perspective on the Bible and on practice and religious rites and other things? What caused him to abandon that so radically or drastically? It's one thing if... You know, he went from one particular denomination. I no longer associate with the Southern Baptists and I want to now be an E-free guy or whatever. Those are minor shifts. But this was a fairly radical shift. And in fact, many of the things that he believed, he denounced and had now adopted some new things. So I want to start by giving you kind of an idea so you can see what I'm talking about by, by sharing some thoughts or some ideas on ether, Eastern Orthodoxy so that you understand what I'm talking about. Um, one of the ways you can visualize in your head is think Catholicism. 
Because it's very similar to Catholicism. In fact, back around 1000 AD or somewhere in that area, they broke off from the Catholic Church. And so as you might imagine, there's going to be a lot of similarities with some of their doctrines. When it comes to the Bible, they do believe that the Bible was inspired by God. They look at it as the Word of God. They hold it on high authority. But they also include into it additional books that most of Christendom doesn't accept. You've got things like the Apocrypha or the Pseudoepigrapha or the intertestamental period between you know, the Old and the New Testaments. Writings that we would not consider to be the Word of God, they actually include in their Bible, much like the Catholic Church does. But they don't believe that Scripture is the highest authority. In the Catholic Church, they would put the Word of God and they would put their church traditions on the same plane. We, on the other hand, in evangelical circles, would hold the Bible here as the sole source of authority. Our traditions and other teachings, we relegate that to that's man's understanding and interpretation. So we would hold the Bible as the highest authority. What the Catholic Church does is they put the Bible and their traditions on the same plane. Okay? Within Eastern Orthodoxy, their traditions become the primary source of authority. The Bible is secondary to that. In fact... Individuals are not encouraged to interpret the scriptures on their own, but rather to allow the church fathers, specifically Eastern Orthodoxy church fathers, to interpret it. And so, oftentimes, they spend more time studying the church fathers' writings than they do the Bible itself, even within their service sometimes. And so, you basically, as a believer, don't have the right to interpret the scriptures on your own. One of the things we find within evangelical circles is we would encourage you, read it, study it, on your own, but check your work. Listen to good scholars and others to help. And and Dustin and I do that in our own study. We'll look at something, we'll study something, and then we look to those who are smarter and wiser than us to see what they've said. But we do our own work because we believe that an individual can rightly understand the scriptures. Within the Catholic Church, it was always, well, but you need the priest to interpret it for you. Well, in Eastern Orthodoxy, you need not just their priests, if you want to call them that, but the church father's writings. And so you really never interpret the scriptures outside of what the church fathers believe. Now, I've studied the church fathers. They didn't always get it right. But within Eastern Orthodoxy, they always got it right for the most part. So the Bible is sort of knocked down a tier, if you will. Um, you will hear the word of God in their services, but it's not front and center. It's very liturgical in the way that it's practiced, in much the same way that the Catholic Church is. They read a passage from Scripture. Actually, they'll read three passages of Scripture, and the priest will do a homily, but oftentimes even the homily isn't related to the Scriptures. It's very similar in Eastern Orthodoxy. When it comes to salvation, salvation is not possible outside the Eastern Orthodox Church. Salvation is found within the church, primarily because salvation is acquired through the sacraments. Um, Faith is not required for salvation in the Eastern Orthodox Church. You'll hear them talk about faith. But because they believe so strongly that the sacraments themselves are what ultimately save you, the sacraments don't necessarily need faith by the person receiving the sacraments or even by the individual, the priest, giving the sacraments because the sacraments themselves are something sacred and have the power to save. So I, as a Eastern Orthodox priest, even if I don't necessarily have faith, as long as I perform that sacrament for you on your behalf, you don't even have to necessarily have faith. You can be saved. So the salvation work is found within the sacrament itself, not necessarily in the individual 
or in the one performing it. So the idea of salvation as a result of God's grace and your faith is really not something that would be um, held in high esteem there. Um, The three most important sacraments in Eastern Orthodoxy is baptism. That's the point at which... um, You're saved from your sin, if you can say it that way. It's the time when you're regenerated or justified. And that could be for both infants and adults. That's similar to the Catholic Church in that baptism washes away that initial sin. But you see, in in, um, Eastern Orthodoxy, that's just the beginning. There's something, the second sacrament is um, called chrismation. It's the point at which you receive the Holy Spirit. And that is usually done through the rite of a priest coming and anointing you with oil and then making the sign of the cross on multiple places of the body. And so again, it's a ritual and it's through that that the Holy Spirit is imparted to you. That's not something you get at regeneration or conversion where in evangelicalism, you commit your life to Christ, you give your life to Christ through faith, you receive the Holy Spirit at that point. You're regenerated, you're reborn, you receive the Holy Spirit. That's not the case within Eastern Orthodoxy. The last or most, you know, another prominent um, sacrament would be the Eucharist, which is the bread and the cup. Um, Within Catholicism, they believe in something called transubstantiation, which means that when the priest performs his duties, that bread and that wine that they use literally transforms into the body and blood of Christ. In fact, Martin Luther, when he was uh, Catholic, that's one of his turning points where one day he was performing the Mass and he was looking down and he thought to himself, I am actually holding in my hands not bread and wine anymore, but this is literally the flesh of Christ and the blood of Christ in my hands, and he began to tremble. It's called transubstantiation. It literally is transformed into, and so that's another sacrament. And so through that sacrament, that's where you get the oneness with Christ is taking that sacrament. It brings you into greater communion with him, where in evangelical circles, we believe the Bible teaches that that's merely a symbol. It's a recognition of what Christ did. It's a way to remember what he did. There's no magic in it. It doesn't literally turn into... Now, in some other Protestant circles, they believe in something called consubstantiation, that the presence of Christ is with, con, with. We don't believe that. We believe it is purely a symbol. There's no, we don't receive God's grace when we do it, but within Catholicism and within Eastern Orthodoxy, you receive God's grace. God's presence comes into you while you participate in the taking of the bread and the cup. So, as I share those things with you, it sounds radically different than what we believe in evangelicalism, right? Salvation is also not a one-time act, if you will. It's considered to be a lifelong process and cooperative effort between God and man. They refer to this as a process called theosis. Theosis. It comes from the word with God, but it's, it's becoming like God. And so, really, it's kind of a, if you boil it down, it's kind of a three-part Process, And I've even got the terms for you if you want to know what they are. There's what's called the purgative way, which is ultimately the discipline of turning away from your sin and doing penance and what they call mortifications for past sins. Mortifications refers to things like denying oneself pleasurable things, humiliating or shaming yourself, um, denying yourself pleasure, sometimes even as far as inflicting discomfort or pain on yourself. And so you're paying for your own sins. 
you're, in fact, you might have seen some of the, um, you know, some of the uh, monks in that from the Catholic Church and other forms of very similar religions where they would flagellate themselves. They would whip their backs as they would walk up to the, you know, up to the mountain. And they're whipping, their, they're basically mortifying their body. They're paying for their sins. Suffering like Christ. You know, you've seen down in parts of uh, South America where some of them crucify themselves on a cross. What's that? Yeah, Padre Pew. Okay. It's sort of joining Christ in his sufferings and that helps start your salvation process because you're participating in the payment for your sins. From there you go on to what's called the illuminative way, which is really where you start to develop this profound understanding of yourself and God. It's you, your mind begins to expand. You fully begin to experience and understand who the Lord is and about yourself. But it's not done so much through a study of God's Word as it is through these religious rites and practices. In fact, it becomes very mystical and starts to involve very mystical Eastern practices. And you're sort of expanding your mind and gaining knowledge and um, everything about God and about yourself and it's making you more holy and more righteous. From there you ultimately hit the final stage which is called the unitive way and it's sainthood. It's the stage at which someone becomes so pure of heart and having this great mastery over their sins and themselves and their mind that everything they do, everything they think or act is in accordance with God's will and it pleases Him. They've finally attained sainthood. That's the goal. To be just sort of everything I think and do now is pleasing and righteous to God. Now when you think about these three things, there are certain things about them that remind us of what we would believe. The idea that, yes, we're to become more like Christ. We're to become participants or or partakers of his divine nature. But we look at that as being all God's work. And our work is to simply be obedient. Is to submit to the Holy Spirit. But within Eastern Orthodoxy, it's this salvation that sort of develops over time. Where we would look at salvation as we've been given salvation at the moment of conversion. The moment of accepting Christ. We're saved. There's there's nothing better than that. Now, we can mature, but we grow and mature for what? To ultimately face Christ and have him say, well done, good and faithful servant. It's not that I somehow am growing more into the divine nature and becoming. And that's why it's referred to as theosis. It's this idea of I become, in some respects, almost God himself or Jesus himself. So, again, very different from what we would expect here. And this whole process of theosis is very mystical. It's very driven by practices and, and um, again, very mystic practices of sorts. A lot of it's borrowed from Eastern mysticism. Other beliefs include the worship of Mary, what they call papal succession, which is that the Pope is the Pope is the Pope. They have their own Pope. Um, He's the highest authority within the church. Um, They believe in praying to dead saints. Um, They use icons in their worship. You walk into an Eastern Orthodox church and there's statues all over the place. Um, Kind of Catholic in some respects, but... To take, taken to the nth degree um, they believe in the existence of purgatory where when somebody dies they go to this temporary holding place and as you pray for them and as they suffer for their sins they can then ultimately grow into that place where they're now forgiven and then they ultimately reject the concept of hell they do claim to believe in hell but really hell is just a different plane of existence with God not total separation from God now I share all these things with you um, primarily because I'm trying to drive home a question 
Which, why would somebody like Hank Hanegraaff, who seemed to really fully grasp and understand the New Testament, the Old Testament, who served as a source of authority for so many Christians for so many years, who provided sound biblical answers, why would he abandon all that for something so radically different? Something that we would look at and say, that is not salvation, that is not the gospel, that is not Christianity. Now, while they may call that Christianity, the doctrine of salvation that they believe in is not the gospel. You cannot preach what is preached in the Eastern Orthodox Church and say that it is biblical. Now, it doesn't mean that every part of it is unbiblical, and I'm not saying that those people don't love the Lord, but it's not the gospel. You are not saved through theosis. You're not saved through the sacraments. So what would possess somebody like Hank Hanegraaff to abandon all that? I I can't get into his head, but after watching a number of videos and reading a number of things that he's written, there are some things that actually stand out, and these will apply to our study as we get into the book of Colossians. When you think about it, one of the things that Hank Hanegraaff actually says is what started his process is he, he began to be enamored with somebody named Watchman Nee. Anybody know who that is? Okay. Um, Watchman Nee was a Chinese pastor and a theologian. He was arrested by the communist Chinese government in 1952 and spent approximately 20 years in a labor camp before he ultimately died. He died in 1972. He was a prolific writer. Um, one of the most influential leaders in Protestant theology and Protestant churches in China, and he's actually revered by many here in the United States. In fact, the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C., last year did a 50th anniversary of his death. He's still revered by many. The problem is that there's plenty within Watchman Nee's theology that was not orthodox. For instance, his teaching on the Trinity bordered on something called modalism, God is not three gods or three persons in one God. There's only one God, and it happens to be Jesus. But he simply displays himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's not three persons in one God, as the Bible teaches. So again, at borderline, in fact, modalism was condemned in the second century by the church. So this is not what the Bible teaches. So he borderlined on modalism. He believed in direct revelation from God meaning God could still speak to believers. Now, many of us, myself included, reject that. Not that God cannot move you or or lead you, but we believe that the Holy Spirit leads us into truth by helping us understand what's written in the Scriptures, that God has chosen to reveal himself after the, the close of the first century through the written Scriptures, and that it's the Holy Spirit who uses those Scriptures to now teach us. That is our source of authority. But Watchman Nee believed that God's personal revelation to him and to others was just as authoritative as the scriptures. He held the scriptures in high regard. There's no question about that. But you could also hear from God directly and deliberately. He believed in um, this two-stage approach to salvation called theosis. That's kind of where it really ultimately began. And much of what he taught was based in more mysticism. In fact, his two greatest influences were two women, one Anglican, one Catholic, who were best described as mystics. They had a mix of their theology from Catholicism and Anglicanism, but also Eastern mysticism that was adopted into their theology. And he admitted that these are the two greatest influences to my life. And you could see that reflected in some of what he wrote. So while some of what he wrote is very, very good, 
there's also some things to be quite concerned with, especially his picture of um, how to mature as a Christian. Again, it was based oftentimes on these mystical practices and other things. So he focused a lot on experience, the experience of knowing God. Hank Hanegraaff claims that that's where it all started for him. He became enamored with Watchman Nee, and you can go online and you can watch videos where he talks about that. And He began to be very engrossed with the concept of theosis, the experience of knowing God. How experiences and practices draw you closer to God and help expand your mind. And it all started with starting to enamor himself with, these te- with the teachings of Watchman Nee. Now what's interesting to me about that is when he talks about this, he doesn't suggest or say, I re-examined the scriptures. I began to see the scriptures differently. Rather, it's this appeal to the teachings of other men like Watchman Nee and others. That began to be what drew him to Eastern Orthodoxy. It wasn't re-examining the scriptures and, huh, I see that very differently now. I was convinced and convicted by that. And Dustin and I can both tell you from our own studies, we've been growing as Christians for how many decades, and we still find ourselves sometimes challenged by what we study and go, you know, I mean, you guys recently saw me teach on the whole concept of the rapture and other things. I've been challenged not by what others have tried to convince me of, but rather my own study of the scriptures. That's the way it really should be. Now, that doesn't mean I don't look to others to help me to understand it, but it should be the scriptures that challenge us to change a conviction that we have. And whenever it's, no, I got hooked up with this person's teaching or that person's teaching, and you spend all your time invested in that, now we've got a problem. And so that's partly what started him down that path. Second, he became enamored with their, sacrif- or with their sacramental system and the practices. It's interesting listening to him where he talks a lot about growing to know God and coming to know God through the experiences. And he uses that word experience over and over and over. It's the experience. Again, not the scriptures, not the intellect, not the mind, but the experiences that seem to drive him and how much closer we can become with God because of participating in this practice or that practice. For instance, taking the sacrament and how in taking the sacrament it really draws us into God's presence and we really experience God's presence when we take that bread and the cup and how that makes us feel so much closer to God and how it expands our mind and our horizons. And when you hear him describe that, again, it's not the scriptures, but rather this experience, the way that I feel, the things that capture my emotions, And that's extremely important to Hank Hanegraaff. That was one of the things that drew him to the Eastern Orthodoxy. Right now there's a move where there are evangelicals that are abandoning abandoning evangelicalism and going to Catholicism. And what's interesting is when you listen to them, one of the things that drives them there is there's something holy and sacred. And I'll admit, folks, I, I go back home to my mom's Catholic church on a Christmas Eve service. There's much in the service I cannot participate in. But there is this reverence and this almost, there's something where you go, yeah, you know, this is something we miss in the evangelical church sometimes. You know, they walk down the aisle and they hold the word of God up in the air and you go, they, they have a reverence for that, you know. And they, they're dressed like Old Testament priests in some respects and they're up there and they're, you know, there's this reverence. And for some evangelicals that becomes important and they're moving to Catholicism not because of the theology but because of the experience. And I'll admit, you walk into a Catholic church on a Christmas Eve service and it is quiet. It is so quiet. People are respectful. You know, there's just something about that. 
And so for Hank Hanegraaff, that was one of the other things that drove him towards that is that experience. It just felt holier. It felt more religious. It felt more righteous. Finally, there's this sense of almost pride and arrogance in it. One of the things that Hank Hanegraaff talks about is, well, the reason the rest of you haven't become Eastern Orthodox is because you're just too stupid to understand church history. No, he doesn't say it that way, but it comes across that way, that this has been the Christianity of the first century church. It completely disregards history, <laughs> you know. Um, but there's this, there's this sort of, we have more knowledge. We understand it better than you do. And if you just understood it, you'd be just like us. And so there's this element of, we've just finally arrived. We, we finally see the truth. And I'll admit, you know, maybe when I as a, you know, evangelical say, well, the Bible says this, it might come across as arrogant or proud. But at least I'm saying, well, it's not my opinion. It's join me in this book and we'll talk about it. And if, let me see if I can convince you that's what it says. Instead of it's just, well, but you'll come around. <laughs> Once you just are as enlightened as we are. But see, that's part of the theosis process. You can finally get to this point where your mind is so freed, you can fully comprehend and understand the truth. And so there's this element of arrogance and pride that comes from that. And so... What are really the two primary things, if we sort of wrap this up, and I'll get to the, the actual text a little bit today. I, when I summarize, why did Hank Hanegraaff abandon what I believe is a sound interpretation and understanding of the scriptures and sound theology for something like this that is so outside the bounds of biblical Christianity? Well, it was following the philosophy, teachings, and traditions of men. That was very attractive to him, and you see that as you listen to him. So that's the first, philosophy, teachings, and traditions of men rather than the scriptures. And secondly, the mystical experiences. Experiences are extremely important to him. He was drawn away by that because it feels more righteous. It feels more holy. It makes me feel like I'm in the presence of God. And like I said, I've been there, walking into a Catholic church. I hate their theology, but boy, there is something about being there and going, yeah, this just has this religious righteous, almost godly presence feel to it. Those are the two primary things. And what's remarkable to me is that's exactly what Paul confronts in this letter to Colossians. So I finally got to my point. That's exactly what we see in this letter. So we're going to talk about that a little bit as we go through it. Let's first of all look and see who was the author and who was the recipients of this, or who were the recipients? When you look at verse 1 of Colossians, it says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. And so we see there that Paul and Timothy both were writing to the Colossians. Paul was in prison at this time. It was probably, he was probably in Rome, probably written about A.D. 60-62. to 62. And we know that Paul was in prison because he mentions that within the letter. Look at chapter 4, verse 3. We're going to bounce around through the, through the book of Colossians here. If you look at chapter 4, verse 3, Paul simply says, Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert within an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open up a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, now look at this, for which I am also, or which I have also been imprisoned. Now, Paul could have certainly been referring to a previous time that he was imprisoned, but it's more likely he was saying, I've been imprisoned. I'm in prison right now. And part of that is, jump down to verse 10. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, my fellow prisoner, Prisoner, 
sends to you his greetings and also Barnabas, his cousin Mark, about whom you received instruction. If he comes to you, welcome him. Paul is currently in prison with this man named Aristarchus. Look at verse 18. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment. Grace be with you. So Paul was currently in prison. And we believe that this was likely his second imprisonment, the imprisonment from A.D. 60 to 62. Evidence suggests that he also wrote Ephesians and the book of Philemon at the same time. And the reason is there's a lot of similarities. When you compare these letters, there's some parallel passages in both Colossians and even um, Philemon to some degree. Philemon also lived in Coloss. So it's believed that when Paul penned his short letter to Philemon, that he sent it along with um, the people that carried his letter to the Colossians. He also appears to have penned another letter. It's one that we don't have. Jump down to chapter 4, verse 16. He says, When this letter, the letter that he's written right here, Colossians, is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. Laodicea was about ten miles away from Coloss. He says, And you, for your part, read the letter that is coming from Laodicea. So Paul had apparently written Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, and another letter to the Laodiceans. And he tells them, when you're done reading my letter to you, send it to Laodicea so they can read it. And by the way, take the letter that, they, that I wrote to them and read that yourself. Now, people said, well, boy, is that letter of scripture? Well, probably not because God didn't see fit to include it in the canon. No copies exist of it. We don't know what Paul said in that letter. But we have to assume probably some very similar things. That would be the understanding. And so we have Paul here in Colossians writing to the Colossians. He and Timothy He's in prison. Timothy may have been in prison with him because we know that Timothy spent some time in prison. But Paul's in prison and he's writing these multiple letters here and sending them on to Colossus. Now, what about the recipients? Well, Paul refers to them in verse 2, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Now, this little tiny town of Colossus, some people pronounce it Colossae. Colossus was in... Um, the Roman, uh, Roman province of Asia, which is now what's called modern Turkey. It was about 100 miles east of Ephesus. It was located in a delta where two rivers merged, so it became a very um, famous and very popular um, commercial boating traffic area. Um, it was also located on the main highway between Ephesus and the Tigris-Euphrates Valley, so it was very, had a very lucrative trade route. So this was a, a prime spot. Now, by the time that Paul wrote, the city was starting to have a little bit less prominence and influence in the rest of the world. It was, I wouldn't call it a dying city, but it wasn't quite as popular. I was out in St. Louis this last week, and it's interesting because they kind of have two downtowns now. They have downtown, which has become a den of iniquity. It's extremely dangerous right now. In fact, when, when my boss and, and his boss went um, early on, they were in downtown because we have an office down there, downtown St. Louis, and when they left that night, the office manager warned them. Don't go one block that direction because you may not come out alive. Extremely dangerous. Don't go this direction you're okay, but don't go there. Almost everybody that I met in St. Louis the last two trips I went on told me downtown is a pit. It's extremely dangerous. We don't even go down there. So there's another area, I think it's called Clayton, where there's high rises being built. It's the new downtown. And so in some respects, Colossus is kind of like that. It's like the old St. Louis where downtown where it was just sort of starting to die a little bit, becoming less prominent, but it was still a fairly prominent area at this time. Its main industry was manufacturing and the export of wool, um, specifically purple wool, if that rings a bell with Lydia. 
Um, it was a mix of cultures. There was a large Jewish population there as well, but it was mostly Gentiles. Um, nearly half the residents of Colossus were slaves. Think about that for a minute. Half the population of Colossus were slaves. Now, when you get to verse 2 there, Paul refers to them as saints and faithful brethren. They were known for their faithfulness, primarily their love. Look at verse 4 of chapter 1. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. Look at verse 8. Paul says, And he, Epaphras, also informed us of your love in the Spirit. So Paul refers to these Colossians as faithful, as those who demonstrate their faithfulness through love of the brethren. That's a very positive thing to say about them. However, as we're going to learn in this letter, their faithfulness was being challenged because they were being tempted and drawn away from certain beliefs and practices, or to certain beliefs and practices that were undermining the gospel. So Paul starts out very positive with them about their faithfulness, their commitment to Christ, their love for others. But he was concerned because they were being tempted and drawn away from faith in Christ. We don't know much about the makeup of the church, but the language and contents of the letter suggest they were mostly Gentiles. Um, It was a mix of slave and free men and women. Um, Paul refers specifically to God's mystery among the Gentiles, which is probably a a toss-out to them. If you look at chapter 1, verse 27, we'll start in verse 26. The mystery which has been hidden from past ages and generations, but has now been manifest to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, among you at Colossus, essentially, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He lists a group of vices in chapter 3, verses 5 through 7. Therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. What's interesting about that list of vices is those were common among the Greeks, but not so common among Jews. That's another reason why we believe this church was primarily Gentiles, because Paul, when he mentions the sins that they had been involved with, it's sins that were more common among the Gentiles than Jews. Lastly, when you look at the letter here, there's very few, if any, references to the Old Testament, which again suggests that they were primarily Gentiles in nature, which would make sense because that was Paul's primary ministry, was it not? He was called to be ultimately a prophet and a, and a pastor and a preacher to the Gentiles. So, what about the history of the church? How did this church get started? What was... What was behind that? Well, the book of Acts doesn't record the founding of this church at all. Um, Don't really know much about it from the book of Acts. But it generally is thought that it was probably founded during Paul's second missionary journey when he was in Ephesus. Turn to Acts chapter 19. There's an interesting statement that Luke makes in Acts chapter 19. Jump down to verse 10. Notice it says this. This took place for two years. In other words, it's mentioning the events that had happened there. Paul is in Ephesus and he says, so this took place for two years, meaning Paul was in Corinth at this point for two years. But notice what he says next. So that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So during Paul's ministry in Ephesus, Luke tells us that all of Asia had heard the gospel. Now what he's referring to there is not all of Asia as we might think of it today, but that area, that specific time, Asia would have 
Then the surrounding area to Colossus, it included some other cities. It included Ephesus. Again, sort of those areas that modern-day Turkey here. So generally what's thought is that Epaphras, who's mentioned here in the letter, had gone to Ephesus probably and had met Paul, had heard Paul preach and probably got saved as a result of Paul's ministry and then left and went back to Colossus' hometown and shared the gospel. Look at chapter 4, verse 12. Paul says, Epaphras, who is one of your numbers. In other words, Ephesus, or, um, Epaphras was from Colossus. And he says, Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in the will of God. We're told earlier, if you go back to chapter 1, verse 7, that that's who they heard the gospel from. Look at chapter 1, verse 7. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. So the Colossian church apparently was founded by the preaching of Epaphras, somebody who was from Colossus. We don't know where he ultimately heard the gospel. Again, it's just suspected that maybe he had traveled to Ephesus. Maybe what Luke records about all Asia hearing may have very well been because while Paul was in Ephesus, Epaphras had gotten saved and took it back. There were ultimately a handful of churches there. If you look at chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf for those who are at Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face. It doesn't appear that Paul had ever met these people. They had not seen his face. But notice Paul mentions a church there at Laodicea. There's another church he mentions later on called Hierapolis. Hierapolis, Laodicea, and Colossus were all within about 10 miles of each other. And it appears that Epaphras took the gospel to those three churches. The church of Laodicea is actually mentioned in Revelation chapter 3. We're going to get to that in a little minute, or in a few minutes. So it appears that Epaphras took the gospel down and founded the church at Colossus. And so here we have Epaphras traveling 1,200 miles to visit Paul in Rome and shares with Paul what's happening at Colossus. And he's concerned over what's happening. And apparently he's there to ask for Paul's counsel, Paul's advice on how to deal with what he's seeing back at, Epaphras, or back at Colossus. And so Paul then pens this letter back to them, having heard about their faith, having heard about the struggles from Epaphras. Now, at the time of this letter, it's believed that the church was probably five to ten years old, which would put it in that maybe starting to mature, but maybe not super mature. Don't really know. And we get to that date because we know when Paul was in Ephesus around A.D. 52 to 55. We also know that he was in prison around A.D. 60 to 62. So he got this five to ten year window. So the church really wasn't all that old. But it was already beginning to struggle. And that kind of takes us to Paul's reason for writing. Why did Paul write? Well, like many of his letters, Paul writes out of concern for the, for the Colossians in this case. And his concerns appear to be threefold. We'll see this as we spend time going through the letter over the next nine weeks. He was concerned, first, that they would be taken captive by false teaching and man-made religion. Second is that he was concerned that they would fall into a form of religious legalism, meaning the experiences, you know, the practices, the rites. It's very reminiscent of what Jesus condemned the Pharisees for and for what they taught. 
Basically, just participate in all the rituals and rites and God's cool with you. The third concern was that they would be ultimately defrauded of their spiritual prize or their spiritual reward. And those go hand in hand. If they were led away from the simplicity of the gospel and faith alone in Jesus Christ to something else, if they found themselves going towards a religion that was based on rights and rules and legalism, they ultimately would not be faithful then in their commitment to Christ, again, based purely on faith and God's grace, and as a result, forfeit their prize, not receive their reward, because the command in scriptures is to stay steadfast with that. And so in some respects, if you want to summarize this, Paul was concerned that they were going to abandon faith in Christ alone for a more mechanical, works-based faith. And in doing so, wouldn't receive the reward that is due every God-fearing, faithful, steadfast Christian. That was their concern. Does it make sense now why I spent so much time talking about Hank Hanegraaff? Because it's exactly what you see is he went from the this, this simple faith in Jesus Christ alone and God's word as being authoritative to I want more, I want the experience, I want the rituals, I want the rites and salvation became not salvation by Christ alone and you know, faith alone but rather now through my participation with God and practicing these rites and rituals to gain God's favor and to receive His grace and somehow I can get to that place where I'm finally free of my sin because my mind's been free and now ah, I'm a saint. I feel God. And Paul was afraid of that. Again, they're abandoning faith in Christ alone. So like many of his letters, he writes with that concern. Now there's a lot of debate over exactly what were the Colossians learning. What was what they refer to generically as the Colossian heresy. You might hear the word Gnosticism tossed around a lot. But there was something being taught at Coloss that wasn't right. That was tearing them away from faith in Christ alone. We don't know exactly what that was. We have some hints in the scripture though. Turn to chapter 2 verse 8. Chapter 2 verse 8. Paul says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy an empty deception according to the tradition of men according to the elementary principles of the world rather than according to Christ notice there's a lot in that verse first mentions philosophy the study of wisdom okay well what is philosophy generally speaking it's man's approach to try to understand wisdom okay it's very man based man centered if you will What about empty deception? Well, he just says it all right there. It's Paul, as we went through um, 1 Timothy, talks about the doctrines of demons, etc. It's all deceptive. He says here, according to the traditions of men. That's religion. So he says, don't allow yourself to be taken captive by the traditions of men. He says, elementary principles of the world. What that is, that's just human observation. You look at the world... And you draw your religious convictions based on what you see with your eyes. What the scriptures reveals to us is we view a fallen creation through fallen sinful eyes, which means we'll come to fallen sinful conclusions about religion and about God, won't we? We need God's direct revelation in the word to explain to us what we see with our eyes. Because we can't interpret it properly. 
I shared recently about a conversation I had with a young man where he was talking about just, you know, we can see God in all the creation and everything. I said, well, let's talk about this for a minute. Does the world work the way it's supposed to? He goes, no, it's kind of broken. I'm like, okay, and we're kind of sinful. Our minds are sinful. He goes, yeah. I'm like, so what do you expect? Can we just look at God's creation, the elementary principles that we see, and come to ultimate truth in God? And he kind of went, huh, never thought about that before. Probably not. And so I went, that's why God wrote this. Because God tells us how to interpret what we see. And so Paul is warning them, don't be taken captive by these people that learn everything by simple observation of the elementary things of the world. And he says, rather than according to Christ. Rather than according to Christ. Turn to chapter 2, verse 16. We see something else. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Again, he basically is talking now about legalism. Don't allow legalism to become your religion. Don't allow them to say, well, you've got to practice that particular Sabbath day or that moon festival. You have to go to church on Sunday mornings or you're going to hell. You have to participate in the sacraments. You have to, you have to, you have to, because otherwise... And so Paul says, don't allow yourselves to be taken away to captivity with that. And taken notice here, he mentions Christ again, rather than Christ. So, this elementary philosophy, this legalism, there are also elements of what later became known as Gnosticism that Paul was concerned with. Gnosticism refers to knowledge. It's a Greek term for knowledge. Gnosticism ultimately was this belief that you could attain secret wisdom or knowledge of God through mystical practices. That's the best way to say it. Look at verse 18 of chapter 2. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement, that's a practice, and the worship of angels, that's a practice, taking a stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, And then get this, once again he's going to mention Christ, and not holding fast to the head, which is Christ, from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with a growth which is from God. So the three things Paul mentions here are are these elementary philosophies, this man-made traditions, human observation. He was afraid they were going to be taken captive by a form of Jewish legalism. He was afraid that they were going to be drawn away by these mystical experiences, these visions, and this practice of worshiping angels and everything else. There were also physical elements that he was afraid of, and some of them are mentioned here, chapter 2, verse 23. These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom. In other words, all these things look really religious. But the appearance of wisdom, they have it in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body. Remember I talked about the monks whipping themselves, somehow it makes you more holy to physically harm yourself because Jesus got injured. So if I injure myself, I'm just like Jesus. It makes me feel close to him. Nail me to a cross and, oh, it's so moving. Makes me like Jesus. I suffer like him. And Paul was concerned with all of these things. And you notice in each one of these, he mentioned, he references back to Christ. That Christ is the substance, not all those things. And so that was Paul's concern. All of those things undermined the gospel, which is why Paul was concerned. I'm just going to read these things to you. Because Paul, throughout this letter, drives home primarily a singular point 
Okay? Just, just listen to these. I'll give you the citations. You can write them down. But I, just, I don't want you to have to be flipping a lot, but just listen to what Paul says. In chapter 1, verse 9, Paul says that he wanted them to be filled with the knowledge of his, God's will, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Paul wanted them to be filled with the knowledge and understanding of God and his will. Okay? Verse 10, he's, he wanted them to bear fruit in every good work and he wanted them to increase in the knowledge of God. Notice this repetition of the word knowledge. That's something that the Colossians were after. Wanted to know God better. Okay? Verse 23 of chapter 1. He wanted them to continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel. Which means, all those other things were taking them away from the hope of the gospel. They were placing their hope in other things. Man-made religion, philosophy, legalism. These mystical practices, the visions that they had seen. Verse 27 of chapter 1. He wanted them to understand the riches of God's mystery, especially among the Gentiles. He says this, Which is Christ in you, which is your hope of glory. That's the gospel. Their hope was in danger of being found in something other than Christ living within them. And he said, So that they might... Be complete in Christ. Paul wanted them to be perfect, mature, complete in Christ, not in all those other things. Chapter 2, verse 2. He wanted them to attain the wealth of the full assurance of understanding under the full knowledge of God's mystery. That is, Christ himself. Where was their knowledge and wisdom to be found? All in Christ not in man-made practices, not in legalism, not in these mystical things, not in demeaning their body, not in all those weird religious practices, but found specifically in Christ. His hope was that they would continue, he says in chapter 2, verse 6, to walk in Him, in Christ, just as they had been instructed. The theme we see repeated throughout this letter was it's all found in Christ. Nothing else. You won't find hope in religion, in religious practices, in man-made philosophy, in wisdom, in traditions. It's all found. Your hope is found in Christ. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And Paul was concerned that all those other things would take them away from that. And the way that I would categorize that is faith in Christ alone. That's our hope. And there was a huge danger in what was taking place at Colossus. There was a risk in all those things. We don't really know what happened to the Colossian church. History suggests that there was still a church presence there in the 6th century. There are a couple of different, actually the 4th century and the 6th century, there were a couple of church councils where one of the lists, or the, the lists for both of those that listed who was there include bishops from Colossus. So we know there was still a, a church there in Colossus at least up through the 6th century. But we don't know much about it. However, Laodicea was only 10 miles away. You remember Paul's connection between Laodicea and Coloss? I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 3. We'll wrap this up in about another 5 minutes here. Revelation chapter 3. If this gives us any indication of what happened to Coloss, it's not a good sign. Revelation chapter 3. Listen to what John wrote, starting in verse 14. To the angel of the church of Laodicea, write, 
The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of creation of God says this. Now notice it starts off there. The faithful and true witness. The way to see God, the way to understand God is Jesus. So here's Jesus speaking. I'm the true witness. Then he says this. I know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot. It's better to be cold or it's better to be hot. Why? Hot water you can wash with. Cold water you can drink. Okay? He says, I wish that you were either hot or cold. You're not. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not, or you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and, and uh, that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed and I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him. Remember Paul said, Christ in you, the hope of glory. He says, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That is about as strong a condemnation as you can find. He's not talking to Colossae, but he is talking to a church just 10 miles away, probably a sister church to Coloss. And the news wasn't good. I would suggest that they probably did not take Paul's advice. They probably allowed themselves to be taken captive and ultimately were defrauded of their prize. So, Paul, as he writes Colossians, is going to focus on Christ. As we go through this, I'm going to take kind of a topical approach to it to try to highlight that. I'll just tell you what our outline is. You don't have to write this down, but we're going to look at the faith, hope, and love found in Jesus Christ. That'll be one week. Then we're going to look at the wisdom and knowledge found in Jesus Christ. Then we're going to look at the reconciliation found in Jesus Christ. See a theme here? We're going to look at the perfection found in Jesus Christ. We'll look at the freedom found in Jesus Christ. We're going to look at the newness found in Jesus Christ. We're going to do that over three weeks. We're going to see the new life found in Christ, the new relationships we have in Christ, and the new mission we have in Christ. And then the last thing Paul does, we're going to look at the role models found in Christ. He's going to list off a lot of these guys who are faithful followers of Jesus Christ. And so what you'll see is as we go through this letter, these are all the things that Paul attempts to do to help them understand, don't abandon faith in Christ alone for religious practices. Now, unfortunately, we'll wrap it up with this. Even within our own churches, we are drawn to that experience, are we not? You know, right now, so much of our music comes out of Bethel and uh, Hillsong and others. It's very emotional. And um, oftentimes, people will sing those words without looking at the words because it's very moving and it makes them feel close. And, and we spend 30 minutes, or sometimes in some of these churches, 40 minutes in just the music. It's very emotional and worshipful. And... Um, we're not really paying attention maybe to the words that are being sung or even sometimes the teaching that's happening. We're all sort of like that in that we like the experience. We like to feel close to God. We want to know more than Him. We want to draw closer to Him. And so we can be drawn into practices. There was a book written a number of years ago by a man named Richard Foster, which is Celebration of Discipline, which lists a series of disciplines 
that we can do that are supposed to make us more holy and make us feel closer to God. But if you look at, at where he drew that material from, much of it is from Eastern mysticism, which is all about religious practices. And yet, is extremely popular within the Christian church. And some of those are found in the scriptures, like fasting and other things. But, but again, the whole, the whole point of that was, we can make you more like Christ. We can make you more like God through these practices and these things that you do. And yet, Paul's approach here in this letter is, no. It's all about Christ. Learning Christ. Accepting Christ. Being indwelt by Christ. That's what you need. Not all the other religious practices and the man-made things that are brought into the church. You know, well, I'm going to make a circle around me. I'm going to be a circle maker, you know, if any of you know what that is. All these weird, you know, I'm going to go walk the path down at the campus down here in Delaware, that little, you know, maze, labyrinth, you know, because that'll, I can contemplate and meditate on God through doing that. These religious practices that we somehow think make us religious or righteous and Paul is going to attack that concept in this letter